Well, good morning. I hope you all had a, a good Thanksgiving. We did. We have so much to be thankful for. Um, I'm thankful to be able to teach this morning. This is uh, my first time to teach here. It's actually the first time I've taught an adult class in a number of years. And um, I've been teaching the children, filling in for John Slout, which is fun. I thought they might be here this morning, but I guess Terry decided to fill in. Um, that was going to make me less nervous, but that's okay. Um, John has been doing a fantastic job teaching apologetics to the children. He's been teaching specifically to uh, biblical creation and trusting in God's word on the account of biblical creation. So when I, the first time I had to uh, fill in for him uh, in keeping with that theme of apologetics, I went to this lesson, which is essentially... Every time I've taught anywhere, this is like the first lesson I like to go to, and it's on the Word of God. And so when I taught the children, um, I taught some elements of what I'm going to be speaking on this morning, and that is the Word of God. And um, specifically, as this is more of an exhortation, an exhortation to know, to love, to trust and obey the Scriptures, to hide it in your heart, and to have a biblical worldview. And I like to go to this lesson and talk about the subject because, unfortunately, I think we see even a lot of churches and people going to church not really having a biblical worldview. And that has troubled me for a number of years. And so, um, as, as a little bit of background, a number of years ago, 17, 18 years ago, Ruth and I attended a big Baptist church. And there were a number of, of Sunday school classes. And um, so we were in one of the classes. And then there were a couple other couples uh, um, we joined up with and started a new class. And I led the prayer ministry in the class and uh, would sometimes substitute teach. And this was the very first lesson I taught, something along these lines, just on the Word of God, on trusting and living according to the Word of God and having a biblical worldview. And the reason, um, well, what? What happened that really motivated me to teach on that subject, we were in the previous class, and the subject of abortion came up in the class. And it came up kind of towards the end of the class, and the teacher asked, is there ever a case where abortion would be okay? And some of the people started piping up and saying, well... You know, if a young lady is pregnant and she's afraid her dad might kick her out of the house or, you know, she wanted to go to college and, you know, it's just going to ruin her life, then maybe it would be okay. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? You know, you're, you're okay with killing a baby created in the image of God for its far? And, um, well, unfortunately, or maybe it was fortunately, um, Ruth and I sang in the choir as well, and we had to always leave the class early. Well, so as that subject came up, Ruth's like, we got to go. I'm like, oh, you know, but so after church, I, I got on my computer and I emailed the teacher and gave him the benefit of the doubt. You know, I, I didn't get to hear his response to whatever this was, but, you know, I shared some scriptures like Psalm 139 that we have been knit together in our mother's womb that God, you know, we are fearfully and wonderfully made and some other scriptures just about, you know, babies you know, having inherent dignity from conception and that they should be protected. And so I sent him this email and I never got a response. 
And that maybe troubled me even more that um, you see just so many in church not having a biblical worldview and not thinking about scripture as, as we should. And so um, this is my go-to lesson that I like to, I like to teach. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about this morning. Um, I'd like to go first to Psalm 19, if you would open your Bibles along with me. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day they uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them, in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. There, then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that we can be here and just look at these scriptures. I pray, God, you would encourage us, you would edify us, and you would help us to think biblically, Lord, and honor you in all that we do. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I went to this, this psalm. This is an interesting psalm because it's, it's split essentially in two sections. The first half is on natural revelation, and the second half is on special revelation. You've heard these terms before. So natural revelation, the heavens declare the glory of God. We look around at creation and we see what God has done. And um, I know many of you, like me, have spent many nights around a campfire looking up at the stars. Mr. Hewlin and I and Josiah, see him there, we've spent many nights on the side of a river and just in awe of God's beautiful creation. And, you know, Romans 1 says, you know, we are without excuse when you look at, at what God has done. But the second half is where we're going to focus primarily this morning is on the Word of God, the special revelation. It's through the Word of God that um, salvation is ultimately revealed to us, that Jesus Christ came as the God-man and lived a perfect life and died for our sins. And so that's what the second half of the psalm speaks of, the law of the Lord. And you and then it ends with, well, what do we do with that? It ends with um, how we should live and, and seeing our faults and being forgiven of our sin. And, and then let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. So when you look at how God reveals himself to us, 
it should ultimately result in a response to how we live. Um, so I, I had COVID a month ago, a few weeks ago, and as I was laying around, running a little bit of fever, um, I started binge listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones. Does anybody listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones? He's an awesome pastor. He died, I think, in 81, but a Welch man and just a great expositor of the Word of God. And he said, nothing is so amazing about the Bible as its wholeness, the perfect interrelationship in all its parts. I think that's true. As you read the scripture, you see it's, it's completeness and it's wholeness, it's heavenliness. Um, and, but, but he went on to say that, you know, it is really a work of the Holy Spirit to believe God's word. So a bit of disclaimer, as I'm talking about trusting God's word, it takes the Holy Spirit to believe it. Because think about it, if you didn't have the Holy Spirit and you're not saved, if you believe God's word, well, you would be saved, right? <laughs> because the gospel is given in God's word. So ultimately, it is through salvation and the Holy Spirit living within us that the word of God is enlightened, illumined to us, and we begin to trust it and follow it. Um, so my, my agenda, the things I wanted to, to actually look at on trusting God's word, um, I want to ask the question, what did Jesus say about the scripture? So ultimately, we follow Christ. So what did Jesus say about the scriptures? And then what did the apostles say about the scriptures? Um, and then look at some other evidence on why we can trust the scripture. And then ultimately, you know, so what? What should be our response? As, as Francis Shaver wrote, how should we then live? Um, and so as we look at what, what did Jesus say about the scriptures, there's a number of times Jesus references the scripture that he had at the time, which was the Old Testament, right? And by the way, during his time, the Jews had laid up the Old Testament within the temple, and that did not include the Apocrypha. It's the scriptures we have today, the Old Testament we have today. And so Jesus, all the time as you read scripture, he's referring to verses in the Old Testament. And um, so there's just a few of them. Luke 4, Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of the scripture. You remember when he opens the scroll at the passage of Isaiah and begins to read, and he says in Luke 4, 21, he says, he began to say, this day the scripture is fulfilled in our ears. So he's speaking of himself saying he is the fulfillment of the scripture. And then again, in, uh, in Matthew, uh, and let me just say one thing. So there are a number, of a number of pastors out there and theologians who downplay the significance of Scripture. And unfortunately, some I even used to listen to and really respect will say, you know, all we really need is Jesus, which in some sense, yes, that's true. We need Christ, and you can be saved without having a copy of the Word of God if someone shares with you that we are dead in sin and Christ is God and came and lived the perfect life, sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and we, through repentance and faith in him, can be saved. We don't have to have a copy of the Word of God to accept that message. But how do we know this message? We know it through the pages of Scripture, the way God has revealed himself to us. And Jesus 
held a very, very high view of the scriptures. And so these are just a few of those scriptures that I'm referring to here. And I think we should attempt to hold a similar view of the scriptures as Christ did. And so downplaying the scripture and the importance of it, uh, we should not do that. We should hold the scripture in very high regard. Um, so Jesus, let's see, another one, Matthew 5, 17 to 19, where Jesus claims that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So speaking of the law, the Pentateuch, the, uh, the first five books of the Bible, and then the prophets, he fulfilled that. Um, if you look in, in history, especially the Baptist denomination, we can essentially can trace our denomination back um, into the Reformation and specifically um, as, you know, as the Reformation happened, one thing that didn't really get addressed in the early reformers was baptism. But then you, you begin to see them talk about baptism. And, um, and, and then, of course, they, they were actually called the nonconformists. So Charles Spurgeon, if you ever read Charles Spurgeon, he was called a nonconformist. He grew up uh, Presbyterian, I believe, or Anglican, I forget. But the Anglicans and the Presbyterians, they, they all baptized infants. And so those that, only, that believed in believer's baptism were the nonconformists because they didn't conform to what the church was doing at the time. And there were some, uh, to, to codify what they believed, there were a couple of confessions. And the one that really set the foundation of the Baptist um, teaching that we really trace our history back to was the 1689 London Baptist, Second London Baptist Confession. And there's a whole section on the Word of God. And the first paragraph says, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of saving faith, of saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of Scripture, the, I'm sorry, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, Romans 1, yet they are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the, wor and of the world to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto the people now being ceased. So this is what the 1689 London Baptist Confession said of the word of God, that it is most necessary. Um, let's see, another verse, I don't think I got to this one, Matthew 19. In having a biblical worldview, um, you see Jesus quoting Genesis here, talking about marriage and how God made us male and female. So Jesus, some people will say, oh, Jesus didn't talk about those issues, but Jesus did. He addressed what marriage should be and what male and female are, that he created them male and female. So Christ most specifically addressed the issues we see in our day that wish to pervert marriage. Um. The, the next scripture, I didn't put it up here, but I 
just hit me last night. Luke 24, verse 44 and 45. Could y'all turn there? Let's look at that verse. Luke 24. Verse. Oops. Okay, sorry. And in verse 44, he says, He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you. This is after he has risen from the dead and he's meeting with his disciples. And Jesus said, And and he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. So you see here, Jesus referring to the law and the prophets and the Psalms, which could be described as all the wisdom literature as the, as the biggest book in there. So Jesus is basically saying all of scripture refers to him and points to him. And then, and then he opened the eyes of the disciples, the apostles, to understand that. And that's where we see, we pick up with the apostles and what they had to say about scripture. Well, they had a lot to say about the scripture because their eyes had been opened to see what, what the Old Testament had spoken of Christ. And so if you look at, let's see, where am I at? Just read it from here. Um, Acts 17, 1 through 3 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul, as his manner was, went, uh, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. So he sat down with, with the other Jews and reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He opened the Scriptures, pointing to them what Jesus had said, that the law and the prophets and the Psalms all pointed to Christ. So that's where they went first, is, is reasoning through the Scriptures. And then you see Second uh, Peter as well. And I love this verse when you start looking at how God moved. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So start looking in at, at, at this. The, it says the Holy Spirit used men. He used their personalities. He used their differences. But it was the Holy Spirit using these people to produce the word of God. And then, um, I love this verse in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says, speaking of Paul, he says, And also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, or twist, 
as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So he's saying, Paul, people twist what Paul says as they do the other scriptures. He's saying what Paul's written is scripture, right? So already at this time, the apostles knew they were writing scripture. All right, a few more here. Um, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So Paul, again, preaching and his group sharing the good news, he says, y'all didn't receive this, and maybe this is letters, maybe it's just his preaching, but you didn't receive it as the word of men. No, you received it as what it truly is, the word of God. That's what Paul is saying here. And then uh, one of my other favorite verses is uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That uh, what is, in, is it was translated here, given by inspiration of God, the Greek actually means, maybe I've heard this, breathed out by God. It's theopneustos, theo, and then like pneumatics, nusus. It's, it's the saying, these are God's very words, as if someone was whispering in your ears and you felt that breath upon you, the very breath of God speaking out who he truly is, that we may know his true character. I mean, think about this. The God who spoke the universe into existence He spoke it into existence. And then, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, a Trinitarian verse. Jesus Christ came unto the world and died for me and you, chose to reveal himself through this very book, the very breath, the very character of who he is, How can we not love his word? It's who he is. Okay, so I'm going to shift gears a little bit here and um, do some fun stuff. That uh, This is the part that actually taught to the children um, when you start getting into apologetics and things. By the way, apologetics, y'all know where that word comes from. Um, First Peter, is it chapter one? I think I wrote that down. 1 Peter 3, where it says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you, or give a defense. That word answer is the Greek word apologia. It means to defend ultimately what you believe. And so apologetics just means to defend what you believe. And so um, can we trust the Bible? Is there other reasons? And I'm just throwing up some things on here that I think are really, really neat. And this is a chart. I don't know how well you can read it, but it's a chart of ancient works in antiquity. So different books um, that have been were written way back a couple thousand years ago, um, starting with Homer, 
You see, plenty of the younger, plenty of the younger wrote about Christ. When you compare the New Testament, just talking about the New Testament, with other works of antiquity, there is no comparison. In the number of copies and the the closeness to when they were originally written. The closest thing is Homer's Iliad. And uh, this is actually an out-of-date text because the New Testament, we have somewhere near 6,000 copies, ancient handwritten manuscripts. Homer was about 600, 643 is what that says there. Um, so I put this little graph together as a, as a visualization when I was teaching the children. I saw it somewhere. I'm not, it's not as good as it should be. But when you think, at, look at a timeline. You have Homer, the Iliad written way over 800 B.C., the first copy we have that's known to exist 400 years after that, and then you have a few more. Well, when you compare that with the New Testament, I told the children, I got tired of drawing little arrows because it blows everything out of the water. It dates back so early and so many. And um, so my, my only point is there is no other work in antiquity that even comes close to the attestation of its authenticity than the Bible. Not even close. I mean, I've talked to your husband about that. I think those are some of the evidence that that helped him to become a Christian. When you look at Scripture, nothing comes close to the attestation of the Holy Scriptures. It's awesome. It's the way God has has given it to us. I want to give you one little, little example, and this, I think, is just amazing. Um, you know, in the Enlightenment, which I call it the Endarkenment, you know, people, uh, they came up, scholars, supposed scholars came up with the, what they called um, higher criticism. And higher criticism, these men sat around in their, at their college universities, and they were very educated, and they talked about how we know things epistemology, big words like that, how we, how we know things. Well, when you look at the Bible and you see things like miracles happening, you know that doesn't really happen. So we, you know, that part of the scripture, we, we don't need to worry about that because miracles just don't happen, right? And specifically when they looked at the Gospel of John, what do you see when you read the Gospel of John more than any of the synoptic Gospels? You see the deity of Christ, Right? I mean, it it begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it's speaking of Christ. You see the deity of Christ throughout the Gospel of John. Well, when these scholars looked at it, they said, you know, John, he talks too much about Jesus being God. This book must have been written several hundred years. It couldn't have been written by the Apostle John. It must have been written several hundred years after that time. And, you know, it just speaks too much about Jesus being God. Because, you you know, that's a legend, right? That's a legend that... The early apostles didn't really, I'm being sarcastic, right? The early apostles didn't really believe he was God. It was only as it developed into a legend, they started to think he was God. So they didn't believe John, the gospel of John was authentic. Well, does God have a sense of humor? I think sometimes he likes to put people in their place. So these archaeologists are digging up things and they find some papyrus and specifically find this tiny little fragment, which is about the size of a credit card, little bitty fragment, P52. And it's a section of the Gospel of John. Well, they do some techniques to date this, this little fragment, 
And guess what? It is the earliest known piece of the New Testament that's ever been found. It dates back well within 100 years of when it was written. And guess what? Scholars have to go reconsider their thoughts. And here is what I think is just awesome. So what is, what is this little section? I don't know if anybody can read unsealed Greek, which is unsealed Greek was all capital letters with no spaces between words. I don't know how anybody reads it, but it's the section of Jesus before Pilate. And what did Pilate ask? What is truth? And to me, I just think God in his providence says, this is truth. The word of God is truth. And I, I don't know, I just think that's incredibly awesome to, uh, to see how that happened. Pretty amazing. Amazing? It's amazing. God is awesome. And he has given us his word. And um, anyway, so enough of that on, on the, the, the textual side of things. And now I'm going to pick up where Aaron left off last week. If you remember, the last thing he said in his lesson, I had to come tell him, was how fulfilled prophecy in the scripture just made his faith in the word of God, just bolstered his faith because you see scripture being fulfilled within scripture and then even in our own days. And so the next bit I just want to look at is some of the fulfilled scriptures um, that, are, that are pretty powerful. So what are some of them? And uh, this is what I talked to the, to the children about. And most of these are about Christ. So when you look in, um, you see that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And there's a verse in Micah, Micah 5, 2, but thou Bethlehem Ephrathath, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Of course, this is speaking of Christ. And then we see in the New Testament, Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And that he would come from the line of David. So you see that, Jeremiah 23, um, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And of course, we know um, from the New Testament that Jesus came through the line of David. What else? We knew who his mother would be. So another fulfilled prophecy. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We could do these all day, you know. I've only got a few more, but we could do these all day, just seeing the scripture being fulfilled. And of course, Matthew 1. And by the way, Matthew, if you notice when you read Matthew, he was writing to the Jews. He is often quoting the Old Testament. And he says, this was done to fulfill the scripture. You see that, especially in the first few chapters, you see that over and over. He, as we read that previous verse, their eyes were open to, to understand and see Christ in the scriptures. And so Matthew specifically was writing to, to demonstrate the fulfillment of Christ in the scriptures. Betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We see that one, Zechariah. And I tried to purposely pull some from different of the prophets, different prophets. I think I had Isaiah, Zechariah, Micah, several of them. And I said unto them, if you think good, give me my price. And if not, forbear. So they 
weighed out for me, for my price, 30 pieces of silver. And of course, we know Judah, Judas betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. You also, in this one, you see the potter's filled. That's also um, prophesied that, uh, that Judah, Judas would be buried in the potter's field. What else? Psalm 22, and I want to camp on this one for a little bit because this is an incredibly beautiful psalm, messianic psalm. But the specific one I had up here was the casting lots for Jesus' clothes. Psalm 22, 18, they part my garments among them and cast lots on my vesture. And then in Matthew 27, we see, um, and they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. If y'all would, turn to Psalm 22. You will recognize Psalm 22 by the first verse, right? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Of course, we are familiar with that because Jesus said that on the cross. And think about this. The Jews listening, when they heard Jesus say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They knew the scriptures, and they knew he was quoting Psalm 22. They would have known it. And where would their mind have gone when they thought of Psalm 22? Well, as you read Psalm 22, this messianic psalm, let me just um, skip down to verse 6. It says, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Does that not sound familiar? of those criticizing and mocking Christ on the cross? Wagging their heads at him? And then uh, go to verse 12. It says, Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset around me. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. You know when, during the crucifixion, maybe y'all have heard this before, but when you're hanging there on a cross, your arms are pulled out of socket, essentially. And you actually die from suffocation because as your arms are stretched out, it cuts off your windpipe. And so on the nail in your legs, they would have to push themselves up to take a breath. And they do this hour after hour while they, while they die. And you remember Christ, what happened as the sun was going down, they went and broke the legs of the men next to Christ, right? Well, once their legs were broken, they could no longer push up and they would die quicker. That's why they broke their legs. But this says all his, bone, his bones are pulled out of joint. Christ hanging on there on the cross, his arms, his shoulders are pulled out of socket. See, I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. So you remember Jesus, he said, I thirst. He was so thirsty. And what happens when you're really thirsty, your mouth gets so dry and your tongue will just stick to the roof of your mouth and you just are dying for water, right? So that's what this is referring to. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me unto the dust of the earth. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and feet. You know, some people say, oh, this is David, he was going through a tough time. Do you remember David having his hands and feet pierced? I, I, don't, I don't remember that. But Christ had his hands and feet pierced. Just think about this. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They're, they're no, they know the scripture and they're thinking, they pierced his hands and feet. Wow. And then, of course, in oh, um, verse 17, I may tell all my bones. In other words, my bones are not broken. So again, the other two, the other two hanging on the cross had their legs broken. Jesus did not have any bones broken. They look and stare upon me they part my garments among them. They cast lots for my vesture. Again, this verse we just talked about. Is that not, I mean, that's, that's an incredible prophecy of Christ. And when we read that, and especially knowing Christ pointed them to Psalm 22, hanging on the cross by quoting, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He pointed them to it. And, you know, I don't, I don't know, uh, maybe... Some of those that heard him say that ultimately came to know him because suddenly, as, as it said in the, in the scripture we looked at in Luke a while ago, he, he opened their eyes to see, to understand the scriptures in the fulfillment of what he was done. And, you know, even maybe as the apostles began to preach, were some of those in that, those, that 3,000 that were saved there? I don't know, but we do know Christ died according to the scriptures and according to the prophecy of scripture. And that is a pretty powerful thing to see all of these scriptures, not just this one, but I just I love Psalm 22 because how of how specifically it references the crucifixion and what happened there. Okay. So now to the so what, and we started with with Psalm uh, eight, what, 18, 19, 19 was it when um, the heavens declare the glory of God, and then. It moved on to, to the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and ends with, you know, the so what? Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So what does Scripture say about the so what? We know God's word is the word of God. Jesus declared God's word was the word of God. The apostles have declared God's word is the word of God. And we've seen even through, through fulfilled prophecy and history, that God's word is the word of God. So we know it's the word of God. So what should we do with that information? Well, the word of God tells us what we should do with that information, right? Um, James 1.21, and uh, if Mr. Fields can hear me, thank you, Mr. Fields, because you often quote this verse, um, but be doers of the word. It says, starting in verse 21, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. You have to say that with an English accent. Can you say superfluity of naughtiness without an English accent? 
superfluity of naughtiness um, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. And again, how do we know Jesus Christ came? We know it through the word of God to our salvation. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. So we know this is the word of God. Let's do it, right? Let's do what he says we should do, right? Ultimately, but how do you obey the scripture if you don't know it? We must know it. And then Psalm 119, great verse, just a reminder, thy word I have hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. The more we know the word of God, the more we hide it in our heart, the more God uses that to protect us from falling into temptation and sinning against him. And then, of course, John 14, 15, and many other times in 1 John, it is said, if, the, if ye love me, keep my commandments. Do you love Christ? Keep his commandments. Obey his word. And then the last scripture here, um, typically if somebody asks you, what's your favorite verse? I usually say, I don't know if I have a favorite verse. The scripture is so wonderful for so much. But I often come to this verse because of what it's saying here. It says, also, or, I'm sorry, it says, yeah, no, I lost my place here. For the word of God is quick, meaning it's alive, quickened. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Sometimes we read the scripture, and it, we begin to discern our own thoughts and intents, right? And it's like that sword, it begins to pierce us, and it hurts, because we don't want our thoughts and intents to be discovered. We want to keep them hidden, right? But the more we read the scriptures, he begins to pierce us and open our hearts and minds to the truth of God's word and how we can live accordingly. It lets us know what we think and it reveals our own wickedness, it reveals our own sinful thoughts. It reveals those areas that need to be sanctified. Um, what's next? All right. So, We should live according to it. We should hide it in our heart. But remember this passage. I think this is maybe one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture because of what it says about Christ. We want to be Christ-like. We want to know Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Christ, the second person of the Trinity, was with God the Father in eternity, right? This is a Trinitarian verse. And the Word was God. Christ is God. It's part of the Godhead. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, 
and the darkness comprehended it not. Um, I pulled up uh, John MacArthur, he says on about this passage, he says, John borrowed the use of the term word not only from the vocabulary of the Old Testament, but also from Greek philosophy, in which the term was essentially impersonal, signifying the rational principle of divine reason, mind, or even wisdom. John, however, imbued the term entirely with Old Testament and Christian meaning, where God's word brought the world into being, where God's word is, power, is, is his powerful self-expression in creation, wisdom, revelation, and salvation, and made it refer to a person, Jesus Christ. Greek philosophical usage, therefore, is not the exclusive background of John's thought. And he's saying this because a lot of people say, oh, John was just pandering to the Greeks and using that word logos, but that's not. I mean, he was pulling in Christian and Jewish meaning. He says, strategically, the term word refer, uh, serves as a bridge to reach not only Jews, but also the unsaved Greeks. John also, uh, uh, John chose this concept because both Jews and Greeks were familiar with it. The word, as the second person of the Trinity, was in intimate fellowship with God the Father throughout all eternity. Yet, although the word enjoyed the splendors of heaven and eternity with the Father, he willingly gave up his heavenly status, taking the form of a man and became subject to death on the cross. The Greek construction, the Greek language construction emphasizes that the word had all the essence and attributes of deity. Jesus, the Messiah, was fully God. Even in, the, in his incarnation, when he emptied himself, he did not cease to be God, but took on a genuine human nature and body and voluntarily refrained from independent exercise of the attributes of deity. It's John MacArthur. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, says, And thus Christ is the word, for by him God has in these last days spoken to us. He has made known his thoughts. John the Baptist was the voice, but Christ the word. Do you want to know Christ? Know his word. Um, the last scripture I want to uh, look at here, uh, you know, we talked about uh, what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that the word is, is just, it, it flows, it connects, you know, it's all together. Um, well, especially when you look at different writers, you know, the, the Apostle John, when you look at all of his writings, the Gospel of John, First, Second, Third John, and then Revelation, you see a um, he, God using his personality, and you see um, him tapping into certain themes. Well, in Revelation chapter 19, let's read this. And I fell at his feet to worship him, an angel, and he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren, that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had the na a name written that no man knew, but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies 
which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. What is that symbolizing? Out of his mouth going a sharp sword. His words going out. And what does it say? That with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Sweet little baby Jesus. Sweet little baby Jesus will one day come and with his word, not only punish the wicked, but also wipe away every tear and make all things new. And we won't have to deal with this old evil world anymore because all things will be made new. But Jesus, the word of God, will do it. And we can have a glimpse of heaven and know Christ through knowing the word of God. So as I wrap this up this morning, just ask the question, do you want to know Jesus? To know this book, right? You want to know Jesus, know this book. Do you want to be close to Christ? Hide it in your heart. Do you want to honor Christ? Keep the commandments that are found on these pages. Honor Christ. All right, well, I hope that you have been encouraged to know and to love, to trust and obey the word of God this morning, to hide it in your heart, to have a biblical worldview. That is my goal. And if any of you are encouraged by that, may God be glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that we can trust it. Lord, you have given it to us that we may know you, that we may know your character, that we may glorify you, and that we may know how you have worked throughout history and continue to work today and will ultimately work for our good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, we praise your holy name. We ask that you bless this day, bless the preaching of your word, May you be glorified and uh, just help us, Lord, to love you more and more. We ask these in Christ's name for your glory. Amen.